It is Father's Day. We've been looking at the book of 1 Peter. If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, turn to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I was accused of uh, manipulating this book so I could get here on Father's Day. Not true. The Lord manipulated the book for me long before I got there. So uh, we've been looking at the basics of relationship. The first week we looked at the foundation of relationship. All foundations of relationship go back to trust. And the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ is built on the trust that we have in Jesus Christ. It's not built on earning our salvation. It's not built on being good enough. It's built on that trust that we have in Jesus Christ. And once we have built that trust within a relationship, there is some growing that takes place. How many of you have been married at least 25 years? Raise your hand if you've been married at least 25 years. Are you the same today as you were when you first got married? Well, I'm looking at you, I'm pretty sure that's not, that's not true physically, but there's so many other things that you grow in your relationship, and it's built on the trust, and the foundational part of it is also that you must grow in that relationship. And then last week, we looked at choosing to forgive. You choose your foundation, then you choose to forgive, releasing the debt. If someone has wronged you, you have to release that debt, and we looked at that last week and, and what that means, and that, that you begin to pray after you have released that debt, you've made that decision that you know, they no longer owe you anything. They're not going to come back and make it right, so they don't owe you anything. And once you've released that debt, you have forgiven them, and then you begin to pray for them, as the Lord told us to, that God's grace would be shown to them just like God's grace was shown to you. And it changes forever, the relationships, when you learn the foundation and you learn the forgiveness. And today we're talking about choosing to care. Now, here's the great news. Sometimes on Father's Day, fathers don't like coming because they get beat up. When, when women come on Mother's Day, we go, oh, what great mothers they are. When fathers come, bam, we hit them and we say, oh, what lousy fathers you are. I'm only going to offend two groups today, okay? Now, listen up. If you are a woman or you are a man, you will be offended. Those are only two groups. Or if you ever hope to be a woman or a man, those are the two groups that will be offended today. So uh, it's equal equal opportunity. Is our society in trouble? Some, uh, Patrick Morley wrote a book called No Man Left Behind. He, he had some statistics. I want to just quote a couple of statistics. Sometimes they don't mean much, but I think these are important statistics. We live in a country where one-third of the children born today are not born to a married husband and wife. One-third of all children are born what we used to call out of wedlock. 24 million kids do not live with their biological father in America. 24 million Kids do not live with their biological father. 40% of all first marriages end in divorce. You've heard that. But 40% of those, those marriages, when they dissolve, that leaves 1 million children a year without living with their biological father in most cases. Divorce rate for the second and third marriages are higher. Men comprise 93% of the prison population. In prison, 93% of the prisoners are men. Of those incarcerated, 85% report that they never had a father figure in their life. Do you think that might have been a contributing factor? It's better in the church, right? Uh, Here you go. Here's some of the statistics for for people in the church. For every 10 men in the church, 9 will have children who leave the church. 90% of the kids who were raised in a church now used to be 85. It's 89% of the kids raised in a church will leave the church. Eight out of ten men in the church will find their jobs unsatisfying. Five will have a major problem with pornography. Four out of ten men who regularly attend church will at some point get a divorce. 
Only one out of ten who regularly attend church will have a biblical worldview. Let's go, let's break it down even a little bit more. There are 113 million men, according to the last statistics that I can get, 113 million men in America, 15 and up, okay? So if you're 16, or above 15, should be, so it's 16 and up, above the, above the age of 15. 113 million. Of these 69 million men, 61% have never made any profession of faith. They don't claim to be Christians. Did you get that? 69 million, almost 70 million men in America do not have Christ in their life in any shape, form, or fashion. Of the 44 million men who profess faith in Christ, only an estimated 6 million are involved in any ongoing kind of discipleship, a Sunday school class, a small group, a Bible study where they're really growing in Christ. So 6 out of the 44 million, that's 1 out of 7 men who profess to be Christians are growing in Christ, or one out of 18. So let's just say this. Say you took 18 men, and you went down to our softball field, and you divide them up into two teams. You had nine on one team and nine on the other team, and you gave them bats and balls and gloves. You gave them three square things and one kind of a pentagon-shaped thing, and you said, play ball. But only one of them has ever watched a ball game. What would the ball game look like if you had 18 guys and only one of the 18 knew anything about baseball? And you say, I I don't want a bunch of explanations. Just get out there and play. And you say, what does that have to do with anything? Only one out of 18 men in America know anything about growing in Christ and being a godly man. And do we wonder why there's a problem in our society? If we want our society to get right, we have to get our church right. If we want our church to get right, we have to get our marriages right. If we want our marriages to get right, we have to, we have to get the husbands and the wives to understand what it means to be a godly parent, to be a godly spouse. That's why this is so important today. And some of you are sitting here today and saying, man, I hate Father's Day and Mother's Day because the message is only for couples. If you are single, if you're widowed or widower, if, if, if something has happened in your life, maybe you're divorced, maybe you've never been married, and you say, this is not for me. It's all about relationship, and any relationship that you're in, you're going to, to understand more about learning to care today. But I think it's more obvious when you're living with someone. When you're around somebody 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 24 sevens as we say. If you're around somebody 24 seven, all the little things begin to blossom, don't they? And I see people smiling saying, yes, pastor. It's exactly what uh, Paul was writing to the Ephesian church. Ephesians 5.25, look at what it says. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church. Well, what did Christ do for the church? It gave himself for her. Christ cared enough to give of himself. And as we choose to care today, if we choose to care, it means that we're going to have to choose to give. And it may be giving up something that you don't want to give up. And we're going to look at that. If you have your Bible open, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, do I care enough to submit? That's the word in the blank, to submit to someone. 1 Peter chapter 3, the women will be very upset for a few minutes. This too shall pass. Hang in there, okay? First Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. Whoa, whoa, whoa. In what same way? Well, if you look back at chapter 2, 
verse 23 and 24, Jesus is being talked about. In verse 24, he says, He himself bore our sins on, on, in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for, live for righteousness. Why? Because right before that, in verse 23, it says, He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The word entrusted there is the same root word for submit. Jesus submitted to the Father and went to the cross. Now, go back to 1 Peter 3. In the same way, wives, be in submission to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of the inner self the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah. I think that's an interesting person of all the Old Testament people to pick out because she laughed when Abraham said, we're going to have a child. She's 90-something years old, and she says, right, this is not going to happen. She laughed. But it says she she submitted to him. Verse 5, uh, they were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Do I care enough to submit to someone? Number one, analyze your actions. Analyze your actions. Now, I know there are some people right now that are hearing that word submit and there are red flags going off, there are alarms going on in your mind and you're saying, oh no, this is one of those churches where they tell the women that they have to be in, in servitude. They have, they're, they're, you're thinking extreme. There are two extremes that come up. The first extreme is that the woman is to be cowering in fear. She's to be in extreme servitude, or, or, and, and it's just a horrible way that the husband is the Hitler in the house. That's not what the Bible is teaching. The other extreme is that somehow this is culturally obsolete, it's archaic nonsense, and that there is no submission that needs to be done in the Bible. That's equally not what the Bible teaches. So, what is it? The word submit means to fall in rank under the authority of another. To fall in rank under the authority of another. Or, I like what Chuck Swindoll says, his definition. Submission is a mark of strength. Submission is a mark of security, not a spineless cringing, not based on insecurity and fear. Submission is a voluntary unselfishness, a willing and cooperative spirit that seeks the highest good for one's partner. That's what submission is. Carol Mayhall and her husband wrote a book called Marriage Takes More Than, Than Love. I think it's one of the best treatments of submission I've ever seen, and I, and I want to read just a little portion of it. Uh, this is what Carol, Carol wrote this particular chapter. This is what she says. I've been reading a number of women authors who feel that anyone who's in submission to another individual is inferior. If you submit, that means you're inferior, which if logically carried through would mean that children are inferior to, par inferior to parents. Some of you are thinking, okay, well, that's not a big problem. Younger people are inferior to older people, we are inferior to our government, and most of all, Jesus Christ was inferior to the Father because Jesus submitted himself to God the Father. Now, do you understand that the latter is heresy, the former is foolish? Most of these women have decided submission is out of date or a result of the fall or a statement that Paul made when he was not in his right mind. I like that. 
Interestingly enough, in Ephesians, I've never read in any of the books about Ephesians that the, th- the thought that the husband's command to love his wife as his own body, which is in the same paragraph, is anything but literal and for our day. Did you get that? She says when you look at Ephesians and the commentaries on Ephesians, everybody thinks that the command for the husband to love the wife is still okay. It's just the submission part that's out of date. The other extreme is to put a straitjacket on wives by binding them with a few short passages directed specifically to wives. Now get this, all scripture is for wives. All of the Bible is for every believer, male and female. Scripture such as speak the truth in love and admonish one another daily are totally compatible with being a wife who is in submission to her husband. Did you get that? Does not mean that a woman cannot speak the truth in love. She goes on, submission is an attitude of a heart and and an attitude of yieldedness and of love. In our family, it works like this. In every decision, major or minor, I freely and openly tell Jack all my opinions and feelings. If we don't agree, we come to compromise 99% of the time. And she notes, this is not like the couple where the wife wanted a fur coat and the husband wanted a new car. They compromised. She bought the coat but kept it in the garage. (laughs) That's not really compromise. You get that, okay. In a small number of cases when we can't come to, the comp- to a compromise, it's Jack's responsibility before God to make the final decision. Now, she goes on to talk about when Jack makes a decision, it's her job to support him in that decision. It's her job to support him in that decision. And she also says this, as I think about it, I'm aware that most women do not have a problem with their husbands making the final decisions, decision if they feel they have been truly heard and their viewpoint understood. Men, please take special note of that last sentence. Some husbands don't give their wives the opportunity opportunity to interact, to express their thoughts and feelings, to be valued in their opinions. When a woman does not feel her viewpoint has been carefully and completely listened to, it's difficult for her not to be resentful when her husband makes a decision in which they are not in agreement. Can I go one step further from what she has said? Because there's something else that we don't get. Especially when we see this in in Ephesians where it says, husbands love your wives and women, the wives, are to submit to their husbands. Because what what typically happens, by the time a couple gets to my office and they're having this discussion about their relationship, here's what happens. She says, if he would love me like he's supposed to, I would submit to him. And he says, if she would submit to me, I would love her. That's why they're in my office. Because they're in trouble. The Bible doesn't say you should submit when he loves you. And the Bible doesn't say to the men that you should love when she submits. The Bible says to give 100%. You see, we need to analyze what we're doing. And let me also add this. The Bible never, ever advocates or encourages a woman to stay in a situation where her health is threatened, where her life or the life of any of her children is any way in danger. The Bible never, ever advocates that a woman should stay in a dangerous situation. That's not what we're saying. But barring that, submission is vital to the health and vitality of relationships. We submit. We, we submit all the time. Have you ever submitted to anything? Have you ever worked any place? Did your boss have this unbelievable rule that there was a time you were supposed to be there and you had to submit to be there at that particular time and you were to work a certain number of hours and you couldn't leave early. 
we submitted to the rules of our workplace. Most of us, more or less, submit to the rules of the road. There is a speed limit sign. Some of you are looking really guilty right now. I'm not going to look any, I, I can't look any place now. We're supposed to not speed. We're supposed to come to a full stop at a stop sign, unless you're a biker. If you're, you know, if you're on a bicycle, you don't have to do that. But everybody else, no, there are rules of the road. There are stoplights. You're supposed to stop. You're supposed to follow those signs, and we submit to that. It's only when in this area that we have a hard time, and our actions reflect our heart. And that's why Peter goes on and on about the wearing of gold and all that. Folks, this is not saying that women cannot get their hair done or wear makeup or have nice jewelry or have nice clothes. I think all of those things are good. In fact, as I'm looking out today, they're very, very good. We like that. That's not the problem. The problem is don't get looking at the external so that you miss the internal. Don't focus so much on that. Peter said he'd submit to Christ. The reason Peter's reading, uh, writing this so that we can read it is that he had a problem with it. He told Jesus, I'll submit to you. And the Lord says, you don't need to do any military action. And so they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and what does Peter do? He cuts off the servant's ear. He said he submitted, but his actions said that he did not. Paul writes to a church that's having horrible problems with submission. They're not submitting one to another. And what happens? It's chaos in, in Corinth. They don't know whether they should eat this meat or that meat or have this rule or that rule. And even their Lord's Supper time, their communion time, is absolutely off the charts, wild and, and horrible things are happening in the church. And Paul writes to them, listen, it's a part of the attitude of the heart, but it's reflected in what you do. And finally, he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Analyze your actions, number one. If you care to submit, analyze what you're doing. Number two, adjust your attitude. Beyond what we do, think about your attitude behind the actions. Beyond what you do, think about what's really happening inside. I worked at Cal Farley Boys Ranch for about six years, been many, many years ago now, uh, left there in 83, 84, something like that. But I'll never forget this one discipline report. There was a boy that would not sit down during the class. We had our own uh, elementary school through high school, beautiful school, great teachers, small teacher to a stu- uh, a teacher to student ratio, ratio was excellent, not that many students per class. But this one boy in third grade would not sit down. The teacher gave him time out, sent him to the principal. It took away all of his, his privileges. He would not sit down over and over. And I kept getting, I had to sign off on all the discipline reports. And I was reading them and I was thinking, when's this kid going to ever learn? And finally, the one that I thought was the, the final straw, and I, and I appreciated that the teacher didn't want to come back the next year. This is what she wrote. I finally got Billy, I'll say Billy, that wasn't his name. She said, I finally got Billy to sit down, and as I was walking back to the desk, I heard him say, I might be sitting on the outside, but inside I'm still standing up. I might be sitting on the outside, but on the inside I'm still standing up. How many times does the Lord look at us and say, is that your attitude? Is that your attitude? Christ submitted himself to the Father out of love. And all of us are to submit. Again, look at Ephesians 5. As we get into this whole discussion in Ephesians 5, when Paul is writing, he's first, before he says, wives, submit to your husbands, Paul, when he's writing about the same thing, says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Oh, wait a second. Not out of reverence for the other person, out of reverence for Christ. What does that mean? Well, let me illustrate it this way. 
How many of you have ever left your child with a babysitter? Raise your hand. I mean, it may have been years ago, but you've ever had a child and you left them with a babysitter, okay? When you left, did you give any instructions to the child? Usually what you say is, whatever that babysitter says, you do that. You obey them like it was me, right? That's what we always told our kids. And then what we would say to the babysitter is, listen, what we need you to do is we need you to make them to go to bed at this time and do this and do their homework and feed them and make them eat and do this. This was the list of things we gave them. If you came back and the child did not submit to the, to the babysitter, who had they disobeyed? Had they disobeyed the babysitter or had they disobeyed you? You see, when they rebelled, when they did not submit, it wasn't just that they said no to the babysitter. They said no to me as the father and no to my wife as their mother. And the Lord says, when you don't submit, you're saying no to me, God. Sarah obeyed Abraham and called her master. Boy, that verse rankles a lot of people. I mean, I'm really thinking that we should, all the wives should, should, you know, every morning, like I dream of Jeannie Master, what would you like today? I think, I'm like, no, that's not what it means at all. It's a sign of respect. Just like in John uh, chapter 19, verse 26, when Jesus is referring to Mary, his mother, he says, woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. When Jesus is referring to his mother, it's a sign of respect. We don't get that through the language. And it is a sign of respectful language. You know what bothers me to no end? To go into a restaurant, to go into a store, and listen to a husband and wife talk in terms of disrespect to each other. And, and calling them names and, and things and the old ball and chain and, you know, you know the old woman, the old man. And, and I, there's just something disrespectful about it. And I'm not trying to be archaic here. I'm just saying that the Lord said there ought to be some respect going on there. Respect is essential. Uh, again, look at Ephesians 5.33. It says, each, of, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. It, it's, all a, it's all a part of that. You know, sometimes I hear people, they come in, they say, oh, we want to get married, and, and God gave me this person. This is God's gift to me. And I, and I perform the wedding ceremony, and God's gift, all of a sudden, a few years later, becomes a broken gift, a, a flawed gift. And there's no respect. And if God gave you that person, at some point, you have to look and see what he's done. I think a lot of us would agree with Joe Aldridge. Joe Aldridge is a, a pastor. He wrote, uh, he, had a, he had a very tragic thing happen in his family. Uh, several of his children died one after another, and he wrote a book called A View from a Hearse. And Joe Aldridge said his married life was not what he expected it to be. This is what he wrote. I thought marriage would be a romantic, moonlit sleigh ride gliding smoothly over glistening snow. It turned out to be more like a 40-year backpacking trip with limited facilities over rocks, through thorns, and then into hot sand. Boy, there you go. As a pastor, he knows how to encourage those going through a tough time in marriage. Joe Aldridge, though, is my hero. Because when things got tough and he lost his children and his wife just about lost her mind, he loved her. And he respected her. And he lifted her up. And he encouraged her. And he prayed for her. And he waited on her. Even at one point, resigning from a church to attend to his wife. Check your actions. Analyze your actions. Adjust your attitude. Do I care enough 
to submit to someone. And then here's the second part. Do I care enough to excel at connecting? Because the second part of this is written more to the men than to the women, although the first part's written for both and so is the second. Do I care enough to excel, not just to be okay, but to really excel? Look back at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now that verse is packed, and we're going to come back to it, so don't, don't give up. Look at verse 8. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, or be a band of brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And look at this last. For Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. Goes back to the disrespectful speech. Look at verse 11. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Three tips here on how to really excel at connecting, at communicating, and, and being the, the spouse you need to be. Number one, develop closeness. It says in verse 7 that the, the husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with. To live with is soon oikeo. It, it's a Greek term, it's, and to break it down, soon means to, to, uh, to be with, and oikeo, oikeo means to dwell, but not just to dwell, but to know the details of. To, to have an intimacy, it, it implies a depth of understanding. It's far more than sharing a bed and eating a meal and paying a mortgage with somebody. It's far more than just some of the details of life. From time to time, again, I'll talk with husbands and and they'll say, well, my wife says I never pay any attention. I don't know anything about her. And I remember saying this one time, somebody said, well, tell me about your wife. And I said, well, my wife, Kathy, is 5'2", and she has brown hair, and she has blue eyes, and I know know her favorite restaurant, I know the, the music that she likes. And the guy stopped me and says, you know, you just gave me all the information I can get from Sports Illustrated about any sports hero that they write an article about. How tall they are, their color of their hair, and their eyes, and the food, and the music. He said, is that all you know about your wife? And it made me realize that it's so easy to kind of know the outside without knowing some of the, 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 the big things. The goals and, and the dreams and, and the things that make them tick, the, the things that really stir them inside, the things that are meaningful to them in other areas. How much do we so many times think that we're close and we're not? Develop closeness. In the Old Testament, there's a, a story uh, in the book of Ruth. Ruth comes back with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and, and as she comes into the country, she realizes that she doesn't have very many prospects because her mother-in-law is a widow and, and there's not much going on in her family. They don't have any money. They're poor and, and they're kind of begging from relatives. And she goes into a field and Boaz, a man who owns a field who's quite wealthy and a little older, sees her and he's attracted to her. She must be a, a beautiful woman in his eyes. And and he gets to know her, and he asks people about her, and he, and he gets to know more and more about her, and he has interaction with her. He tries to show up when she's there so he can, so he can talk to her and get to know her, and, and, he, and he does this work to do that. And finally, in, in Ruth chapter 3, verse 10, she shows up one night at the threshing floor and does something 
that he considers very kind. And, and this is what Boaz says, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. He said, I, I've realized something about you. You're a person of quality. I've, I've read between the lines. I see who you are. I love your character. Not only was I attracted to your looks, but now I've really gotten to know you. This is a huge verse. And we need to learn from that. Because it takes time. It takes listening. It takes pay, paying attention to concentrate, to pray for insight. Really wanting to know that other person. And if you want to be a great friend to someone beyond just what you have in marriage. If you really want to do that, then you, it, it takes some work to get to know that person, to go beyond the, just the conversational things that we have so many, so many times. Hey, how are you doing? Doing great. How, how about those 49ers? Oh, yeah, well, so much for that. Uh, how about the Giants? Oh, how, oh well, better, better go someplace else. What are we going to talk about? And you don't really know that person. I love bicycling, and, and it was interesting because uh, recently some of us have started wearing a road ID, and it's uh, so that if they find our lifeless body by the side of the road because we've been hit by a car, they'll know who we are. But even more than that, it has me medical information. I'm very allergic to iodine. I didn't realize that until I had a CAT scan, and the doctor told me if I have another injection of iodine uh, for a CAT scan, it would probably kill me. And so I have on there, please do not give me iodine you know, warning, alert. And I have that when I wear my bicycle and I wear it if I'm out in some place that might be dangerous. Not that I ever expect that to happen. But the reason I did it is, is I read this testimonial of, of a person who had ridden bicycles with somebody for five years, knew all about them, they thought. And when the medics came and said, what medical conditions do they have? They had no idea. Turned out that he was allergic to two things that are commonly used in emergency room situations and either one of them would have killed him. Do we really know the person? Develop closeness. Number two, be considerate. The woman is described as the weaker partner. Now, I have a problem with that terminology. I, you know, again, women do not like that term, and I understand why. The women are considered weaker. Weaker in what way? Are women weaker spiritually? Absolutely not. Are women weaker morally? Absolutely not. Are they weaker intellectually? Absolutely not. Are women necessarily weaker physically? At first I would say yes, but then I've watched my, child ha uh, my, my wife deliver three children naturally, natural childbirth. Women are not weak. I've never heard of natural gallbladder surgery, <laughs> natural ACL repair or meniscus repair. That doesn't happen. For a woman to go through childbirth naturally, first of all, drugs are good. But secondly, it shows a lot of toughness. So I don't know that they're necessarily weaker. Dr. Robert Curlin, an orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist, says, though, if you put a battle of the sexes was reduced to a tug of war with 100 men on one side of the rope and 100 women on the other side of the rope and there was a trench in the middle, the men would win every time. Not just from their weight, but from the actual musculature that they have, he believes that the women do have a weakness in that sense. But I don't think that's the point. I think women may have the one weakness, maybe the emotional thing. And I don't mean that in a negative way. They're wired differently from us. And I don't think it's weaker in the sense that they're inferior in any way. It's just that they're different. It's the whole men are from Mars and women are from Venus or men are like waffles and women are like spaghetti. I like that analogy a lot better because it's food, okay? 
And we pigeonhole all these things into little holes and little cubicles. And women, it's all tangled up the whole time. So that when you say something, all of the spaghetti gets over here. And she's asking you a question. And you think, we were over, way over here. Where did you get over there? And they're just different. And we are to treat them with consideration. That's, that's not in any way belittling women. In fact, there are a lot of times when I wish I could interconnect all of those things. But I'm still in the waffle mode. I'm still thinking I've got my little waffle square. Here's what the Lord says about it. 1 Corinthians 13. We read this at weddings all the time. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. That's being considerate. That's learning to be patient and kind and and, and not jealous and not proud. It's being considerate of that other person and finding a good way to, to love that person. I was told a long time ago, a good friendship is not so much about finding the right friend as it is being the right friend. A great friendship is not so much finding the right friend as being the right friend. Jerry Westcott was the man who told me that. He was my pastor, mentor, my friend, and he was a great friend. Never turned down a phone call, always willing to give. Be considerate. Here's the last one, cherish one another. We don't like to talk in these terms for guys. I understand that. I, you know, I mean, we can, we can do okay with the, the closeness and the consideration, but cherish one another. What do you cherish? What is it that's so dear to you? What, do you, what is it that is, has been elevated with your passion, with your love, so that you cherish that thing. And it says here, not only are we to love our wives in the same way considered as we live with them, treat them with respect, but it goes on to say, live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love as brothers, as if you're family. To have that bond of brothers, to, to have that comfort and that strength and that encouragement, we all need that. And it's great for us as men to get together. And, and I think the men's ministry, folks, if you miss out on the breakfast that we're doing now, the first Saturday of every month, uh, July 2nd, we're going to have another breakfast. What did you say, Gary? We're going to have biscuits and gravy and ham and eggs. Ah, that's, a, that's a man's breakfast. I mean, get that cholesterol. I can feel my cholesterol going up as we speak. My arteries are hardening as we speak. Praise God. That's the way to go. Massive coronary from, with a piece of ham in your mouth. That's the way to go. Dripping with gravy. (laughs) But it's not about the food. I believe the men from this church are going to impact other men. I believe there are men in this city who are dying to know about a Savior who could love them, who could transform them, who could save their marriage, who could help their family. And the men, the band of men that are coming together, the point men, are going to point the way. We are the scouts. And one day in this church at the Lord Terry's, there will be hundreds of men. And we're going to say, where are we going to put all the men for the men's breakfast? The gym's not big enough anymore for all of these men who have been drawn here by Christ, not by us, not by some program. They've they've been drawn by the love that these guys have for one another, the way that they cherish one another, the way that they encourage one another, the, the way they build one another up. If the Lord tarries one day, this place will be overrun by men and women in the men's and women's ministry where God is going to transform this city because of what he's doing in the hearts of men and women today here. 
This is the way that it happened in the Old Testament. David and Jonathan, so close, such great friends. Jonathan said to David, go in peace. It's the last time that they'll ever talk to each other. Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. And these guys are passionate about each other. One of them is the king's son, and he knows that if he turns David in, he will be the next king, and he chooses to lose the kingdom to his best friend. That's cherishing. For some of us, it's a lot simpler. Jay Kessler was the president of uh, Taylor University, and I love Jay. He had a great sense of humor, and somebody said, what's your goal as a man? What's your goal in your life? And he said, oh, that's simple. He said, hold up eight fingers. And he said, okay, here's eight. What what are you telling me? He said, eight. I want eight guys who will come to my funeral and spend the whole time there and never once look at their watch. They're here because they love me. They're here because they care about me. So here's an assignment for you. Normally I end up with a great illustration. I'm going to end up with an assignment. Here's the assignment. Write it down. Write down four things you appreciate about the person you're closest to. If you're married, I'm hoping that would be the spouse. Write down four things you appreciate about that person, that you love about that person, that you cherish about that person you're closest to. And then you have to take those four things that you've written down and tell that person face-to-face why he or she means so much to you. And be specific, concrete examples. Not just, well, you know, I like your cooking, you know, I like your... uh, Specific, concrete examples. And here's the other part of the assignment. Admit one thing you need to change about yourself. The four things you love about someone else and the one thing that you need to change about yourself. Now, if you're talking about friends, I want you to do that. If that's the person you're closest to, I want you to do that with your friend, your best friend. And admit that you have this area, this weakness, and you need to change that. Here's the problem. Most of us get that reversed. Don't get it reversed. Don't list the four things you want the other person to change and the one thing you like the most about yourself. That's not the the assignment. There's a movie coming out September 30th called Courageous. It's from the makers, the producers, the writers of Fireproof. And in the movie at one point, the, the, the lead character says, is talking, and he says, I've been a bad father and one of his best friends says to him, you're a good enough father. I've watched you. You're, you're a great father. You're good enough. You don't need to work on it anymore. And the lead character says back, do you want to be just good enough when it comes to being a father? Do you want to be just good enough when it comes to being a dad? Joshua 1.7 says, be strong and very courageous. Do not turn to the right or the left that you may be successful wherever you go. I thought a lot about this eight years ago, just uh, shortly uh, from now in August, I got a phone call. My father had had a stroke and he was dying and we knew that the the call came in on a Friday and I was supposed to preach on Sunday and I talked to my wife and I talked to my family and they said, you know, he's not changed and so we made a a plane trip, I got a plane ticket for Monday and I left on Monday, and I got to the hospital 15 minutes after my father had passed away, but I preached on Sunday and stayed there in the church. I thought about my father a lot. My father never went camping much. My father was not very mechanical. Uh, My father never taught me how to use a power tool because he was afraid of using them because he was afraid of losing his own fingers. My father didn't fish much. I remember one time going fishing with my father. He got burned, and we didn't catch anything, and he didn't think it was all that much fun. 
Only one time camping with my father, and the whole time that we camped, we went to restaurants every time we needed to eat in Colorado. My father loved baseball. He would come home, he was a pastor, and he would play baseball in his suit in the afternoons with the boys. He would play basketball, and he loved sports, and he would take us to the Kansas City A's, and then the Kansas City Royals tells you how long ago that was. But that's not what my father taught me. My father taught me to pray. My father taught me to love Jesus Christ. I'll never forget, I was a little boy, and I was, I I couldn't sleep, and I was feeling sick, and my parents were in the room, and I could hear that they were still muttering, there was something going on, and I knew that they had prayers, and I thought I could interrupt the prayers, and I started to knock on the door, and I heard my dad lying in bed with my mom praying, and he was praying for me. And he was going into detail about my grades and about my sports that I was in right then. And the, the, I was playing the cello, and he was going through all these things. And then he went on to my little brother, and then he went on to my little sister. And I sat down outside the room, and I listened. And then he prayed this prayer for my mother. I was a little boy, but I knew that I was in the presence of greatness, listening to my dad pray. It wasn't this pretty prayer that you hear on Sunday mornings from pastors. It was just guttural. It was from the heart. This man praying with a love and a passion for my mother that I'd never heard him say. I never knocked on the door. I just snuck back to bed. Never told my dad that. I wrote him a Father's Day letter a few years before he passed away and told him how much I appreciated him as a dad but I didn't tell him the story, and when I went for the funeral, I told my mom the story. She said, Georgie, I can't believe you were out there. And I said, when did Dad stop praying? She said, oh, it got bad. He got Parkinson's, he had diabetes, he was really losing his ability to grasp things because mentally he was getting some degenerative things after he was 80 years old. The last two years, she said he would pray and he would fall asleep and he would wake up and he would pray and he'd fall asleep. And she said one morning I woke up at 2 o'clock and he was praying for the grandkids, 20-something of them praying for each one and he was completely lucid and he was praying for their, their spouses to come. I had a great dad. And you can be a great dad, not because you teach them to camp, because you teach them to love the Lord. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? What an awesome father you are. You are a father to the fatherless. For those that didn't have dads, you stepped in and taught them the things that they needed and led them to men who could and brought them to churches where they could see it and put them on teams where they could find it and woke us to a whole new reality of love and life in you. Father, We have come today to honor the fathers, but more than that, we've come to pray that we will be the men that you've called us to be, men of honor, men of glory, men of humility, men of prayer, men of passion, to learn to cherish those people that you've put in our life that are so important to us, to be considerate, to to be close, to know them. And in the process, Father, understanding that relationship that you have with us as Heavenly Father and learning what it means to be your child. Father, there's some that are here today that maybe have never trusted in you. 
They don't have the foundation for their relationship. Or there may still be some unforgiveness. Forgive us, Father, for those things. Because you have made the way through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you, Father, that we've been given an entrance into your presence by Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. May we come and live life the way you've called us to live it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.